In Britain and across the world, there is a crisis. A crisis of misinformation, disinformation, and politics, where opinions are weaponized and hailed as fact, and science is the enemy. The press, where so much of our pain is disseminated to the public and more often than not met with unkindness, hostility, and disdain. Every fortnight on Media Watch, we invite a guest who, within their field, is seeking to correct this imbalance and recenter the truth. Not through unfounded opinion, but with facts and objectivity, challenging, interrogating, and highlighting the misinformation, lies, and bigotry. But it's not all doom and gloom. We're also going to celebrate and shine a light on our successes, our wins, and our moments of triumph as a community, both within the mainstream media and our own. Welcome to Media Watch with me, your host, Shamir Sunny. Today, I'm joined by author, model, and Gay Times contributing editor, Jamie Windows. In this episode, we'll be discussing The Telegraph's recent report with the headline, Conversion Therapy Ban Would Criminalize Christian Parents Stopping Children Seeking Transgender Treatment. Unpacking the story and discussing more generally the way mainstream media is currently reporting on trans issues. Hi, Jamie. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm... uh... It's good to see your face, you know, that's all I can say. But I'm good, I'm good, I'm, I'm comfortable, I'm relaxed, I'm ready to get into it. How are you? I'm good. It's been a long time since we spoke last. I'm not sure, what, it was, must have been some event. I think we've all been hunkered down. <laughs> Truly. Jamie is an important and crucial voice within the trans community and does much through their own work and platform to raise awareness of trans issues in the UK. I myself enjoy Jamie's work a lot. I stalk their Instagram every day, I think, go through the stories. I'm enjoying the flurry of ads these days. I will say that, Jamie. I'm so, I read your post about that. I will say before we continue on, I read your post about, um, you know, like balancing the kind of the, the work between activists and also as, as social media presences. And you sort of made this point that I am, I'm not here to kind of conform to this idea of what is and isn't an activist. I'm here, like everyone else, one, trying to do work that's helpful for my community, but also, you know, secure the bag. Yeah, definitely. It's like there's so much expectation that comes with that label of activist that I don't, uh, I wouldn't, I think reject is maybe a strong word, but like I, I don't like the label because it comes with so much expectation. So that when I do things like Instagram ads and things that are a bit silly, people kind of try and rein you in and they're like, hold on, what are you doing? And it's like, well, I, never self-identified as an activist. I'm just someone that says things about my life or other people's lives. And if I want to talk about some beautiful new makeup that I may be having, I'm going to do it and you're going to enjoy it. Period, (laughs) right? I like how you said self-identified as an activist. It's like, especially being trans or gender non-conforming or queer, there's this constant need to... Literal existence is a is a form of activism and a performance. I say we, particularly not me, but for gender non-conforming people and trans people, right? It's like uh, we are not we, but you are activists and and doing the work in your very existence. So there's this constant confirmation of what you need to be or do in order to sort of fix your own community or like save your own community. It's like actually, it's not your. Nobody else should have a say in how you present yourself or work or do what you do because there's enough shit on the plate (laughs) yeah exactly it's like i just want to especially in the past like six months or so like i'm just like i don't i in the nicest way possible i just don't care anymore about what other people think i should or shouldn't be doing i'm just having having a laugh and it's opened up so many more avenues for me so yeah yeah i'm glad for that i'm glad In April 2021, The Telegraph published an article stating, the government's proposed ban on conversion therapy would criminalize Christian parents who want to stop their children seeking transgender treatment, a leading QC and Church of England minister have warned. 
In a formal legal opinion sent to ministers last week, Philip Havers QC, a human rights lawyer, wrote, banning conversion therapy would unintentionally make it illegal for Christians to tell a child questioning their gender that they should remain in their birth sex. The article concludes with a statement from the government that, quote, we have made it clear we will take action to stamp out conversion therapy in this country, end quote. And this comes after three leading LGBT advisors quit their posts in protest of government delays. In March 1985, Gay Times Media Watch published a piece on the religiously justified homophobia of the British media during the peak of the AIDS crisis. It quotes a Peregrine Worsthorn of the Sunday Telegraph who said that, quote, the public's first reaction to this new danger of AIDS will be to look for a scapegoat. A search, in this case, presents no difficulty at all, the male homosexual being the obvious candidate. Media Watch critiques this comment by saying, quote, to Mr. Worsthorn, then, homosexuals have had it coming for some time, and now they're going to get it. The only thing missing from his piece was praise the Lord. Two articles from two different eras with the same premise, that of religious morality justifying anti-LGBTQ bigotry. What are your initial thoughts on the story? It's interesting to me because I couldn't, initially upon reading, I did it and put my finger over the date that they were both on. So to see if I could try and work out if, which one was the one from the 80s. And I couldn't work it out. I truly couldn't work it out. That first, the, you know, the first one from the Telegraph is very, I'm not going to say shocking, because if you're queer, these things often become quite numb. You're just like, okay, yeah, there's someone someone else being outrageous. But yeah, it was it was a difficult read. What did you think? There's this constant back and forth between religion and, and the LGBTQ community. And so, uh, you know, when it comes to conversion therapy specifically, it's like there's this big focus on Christian aspect of it because it's, I mean, we, from all the literature and all the, all the, all the news that we've seen growing up, it's always been like Christian conversion camps. For me, it was, you know, growing up in Pakistan, it was that if you found out that your son was gay or your daughter was queer or gay or whoever, that you would take them to the imam if they were even willing to like kind of consider that that is happening or that you are actually queer they would take you to the imam or a religious leader for help to save you from the curse so to speak and i think religion we're constantly affronted in our community with this kind of back and forth between us and, and religious groups and what i find interesting now is that actually you have people who, are identi who identify as queer, but also as Christian or queer and Muslim. And so there's this interesting new kind of dynamic now where we've allowed the room for nuance when it comes to you can be Muslim and gay and you can be Christian and gay. Whereas early on, I'm, you know, there was a, a much more adamant uh, resistance to uh, or, ex or acceptance of the separation between orientation, gender identity, and religion. What are your experiences? Are you Christian uh, or are you of Christian heritage? And have you had that experience with religion yourself? This has come at quite an interesting time because I'm not religious. I was brought up in what quite a lot of British families have is kind of this almost like pseudo-religious environment where your parents, if you asked your parents, like what if I was to say, mum and dad, are you religious? They'd say, of course. But then if I was to say, are you act, you know, do you act upon that? Do they go to church? Do they, you know, do they actually actively t take a role in religion? They would say, of course not. No, we just, they, th they thought of it more on a value basis rather than a active role in their life. So I think for me now, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm religious, but over the past six months, I have been getting in touch with spirituality and a god of my understanding or a higher power of my understanding so that has been quite transformative and i think what i like about that is that it's self-determinate you know i'm not subscribing as it were to a god of any religion i am just believing that there is something greater than myself that can guide me through wherever i go 
Yeah, what I think is interesting looking back at what you said before is how in the media, conversion therapy, when it comes to Christianity, is spoken about in a very almost nurturing way. It's posed as a conversation that is coming from a place of care. It's coming from a place of, we want to look after these young people. Whereas if you look at the conversation around the Muslim faiths and Muslims and Islam, and and when that is brought into the media, it always comes from a place of fear. It always comes from a place of these, you know, Muslims and the Islamic traditions are trying to control something for the, not for the greater good, but because they're manipulative. Whereas in this piece from the Telegraph, like if you were to look at it, what they're saying is being posed as something that is very, you know, caring when it's not in, in any facet of the imagination. It's so interesting that you make that point because I myself have like kind of failed. Well, I didn't make that, not failed, but I didn't make that connection myself because I was, I'm so used to conversations around Christianity and sexuality be so comforting or like accommodating and like, let's listen, let's consider both sides. But, you know, every time, you're so right, every time the conversation that when it comes to Islam, it's deeply rooted with Islamophobia. And we know that the Telegraph and a lot of right-wing, most, if not all, right-wing publications, well, actually all right-wing publications in the United Kingdom are quite proudly Islamophobic when it comes to queer issues. You know, it's like Islam and homosexuality are complete polar opposites, whereas at least Christianity accommodates it because we're a Christian society. And it, there is a sudden conversation going on heavily about conversion therapy and the need to ban it. I'm curious, actually, are you a recent convert to centering the issue of conversion therapy, or is this something that you've cared about or been vocal about from the very start? It's something that I've been aware of, but like a lot of issues, I what I like to call kind of our corner of the internet is that we are often very much saturated in a way, not in a bad way, but we are saturated with these conversations a lot of the time. And I think what's happened now is that the mainstream media, because of the fact that government ministers have quit, the fact that there's pressure being mounted on them, now the conversation has taken a larger turn in terms of public scrutiny and public discourse. That conversation within our corner of the internet, within the community, has completely blossomed. So I've always been aware of it, but I wouldn't say that I have... I think if I'm honest, I've always thought it's something that's very deep, underground, niche-specific. I didn't actually realise that, you know, a big realisation for me was when Keir Starmer went to that church that I've forgotten the name of, but he went to that church in his Easter service video. And, you know, that's it's obviously a very popular place, a Christian place where lots of people go to. And, you know, they support conversion therapy. So it's like, well, this isn't just, you know, that's my naivety. That is, This isn't just something that happens in the, you know, the deep, dark corners of this country. It's very prevalent. Just so our listeners um, are aware, conversion therapy is the pseudoscientific practice of trying to change an individual's sexual orientation or gender identity using psychological, physical, or spiritual interventions. Because I fully admit my focus on things I've said, or even if I've talked about it at a panel or or an event, or even in a closed community group, my conversations have never even brought up conversion therapy unless I was talking about Pakistan or Nigeria or Ghana or, or the global south, right? I w- or in Russia. I've never actually spoken about it or discussed it here in, in the UK until probably a few months ago because I never saw it as, as something that was a core issue of the queer community here. I thought that it would have been kind of stamped out by now. And the idea that something so archaic and violent still is present within the core aspects of British society is a bit telling of the, of, the, of the way that LGBTQ conversations happen in the press. It's, as you said, there's this, suddenly there's this attention given and finally we're given that, that place to, to speak up now. Whereas back then it was like we didn't have access to the conversations at all until or unless we were out on the streets being beaten by the police, right? And so 
what I was sort of observing this conversation on gay conversion, around specifically gay conversion therapy, there is this huge movement in the United Kingdom of anti-trans activists, people who are vehemently transphobic, something that even the trans communities here in Pakistan, I don't want to say joke about, but it's like, it's kind of discussed as in these people are barbaric when it comes to trans issues. You know, that's the kind of conversations that go on in Pakistan. It's like the UK is transphobic as fuck. Which I love. I love that dynamic because in this country, if you were to go to most people and you were to say, where do you think transphobia is the worst? They would say the global south because they're racist. And it's like, actually, no, look in your, on your doorstep. It's right here. <laughs> yeah. And there's no denying that trans people face issues across the globe. But when it comes to the press specifically in Britain, and I'm, I'm here in Pakistan now, and I've, I'm watching every day someone who has got thousands of followers or on, is, is writing front page articles for major newspapers, whether, whether they be right wing or left wing, and they're talking about this issue of gay conversion therapy, and they're centralizing or focusing on the point that actually that means that you can't stop your child from transitioning. And so there's a lot of conversation going on about how the poor gay man is being con uh, converted to being a heterosexual, right? And I think, though that's of course important and it's violence against homosexual men, for me at least, I want to know your thoughts on this, what do you think is the difference for trans people or what is what are the issues for GNC and trans people in the United Kingdom now when it comes to the conversation around conversion therapy? I think what has happened in this country, specifically with the Telegraph, you know, I've noted in many things that I've done over the past couple of years, I've specifically pulled out the Telegraph for vile, rampant transphobia. And I think what has happened is that this continuation of dialogue from the British media about trans people, about the nature of debate around our identity, around the fact that, you know, the case of the Tavistock Centre, around all of these things that are heightened and whipped up, what that does, and I don't know if they realise it, but part of me would, wouldn't be surprised if they did, is it legitimises the conversations that happen around trans conversion therapy because they can fall back on this idea that, you know, they have examples. They have real-life examples in the press of being like, well, look, this is being said here, and they take it verbatim. And it's like, well, socially in this country, homosexuality is seen as something that everyone can get on board with. It's not colloquially, you know, amongst kind of straight people. It's like, yeah, you're gay, so what? I don't care. So therefore, there's a kind of common acceptance around it. So therefore, when someone goes through gay conversion therapy, there's outrage because there's a considered understanding that it's okay to be gay. Whereas, like I say, because of this constant back and forth around trans issues, when someone is involved in conversion therapy as a trans or GNC person, it's barbaric to think, but there is questioning there that, you know, people are like, mm, well, is that a bad thing? And that's because of the media. That There is no other way that you could explain it's, that. Um... A, a violent hatred and a, and a violent fear that I think there are conversations around, for example, Islamophobia post 9-11 and the way that the press, there was no logic, there was no science, there was no understanding, there was no study, there was no empathy. It was so fundamentally and obviously centered around a fear of an entire community as imposing their values or their ideas on each and every person in the country. And so much of how white supremacy and systems of oppression, whether it be classism or racism or homophobia, center around this idea that this person or this community is imposing their ideas and their science on me personally. Some people will say to that, but we're not doing that, we're just trying to exist. And I'm like, actually, no, part of our role in this country specifically is to remind people that yes, we are in your homes, we are partaking within your communities, 
and we are also present in your daily life. And this, the, the, the fear that you have is entirely stoked by bigotry and hatred. And people kind of give the press here this, this leeway. We want to know your thoughts on this too, but that, you know, they're sensible, they're smart, they went to Oxford, they read up, like they're intelligent. And I'm just like, actually, these people are just normal people that like to write who are entirely driven by the same things that conspiracy theorists or uh, extremists or people that go down YouTube rabbit holes are exposed to, which is this radicalization towards a community that actually isn't doing any harm to you. And so what I would like to know in your heart of hearts, what do you think is not a solution, because I know that's really broad, but what do you think are some of the steps that community can take, or not the community in general, but everyone that you would like to see as a trans person, gender non-conforming person, as a queer person, that'll make you feel safer? I think for me, one of the biggest things is, you know, you've spoken about this a lot in your career, and the British, like you say, the British press feel like they have leeway because of the systems that they are built upon. You know, many people have said, before that this isn't an isolated incident. And what I would want people to know is that this, as you say, radicalization of people who want to prevent other minority groups from living their authentic lives is completely linked with fascism, with white supremacy, and they are all intermeshed. And I think what I would feel comfortable with from people to make the world safer is to acknowledge that acknowledge the intersectionalities within that but acknowledge that they are all part of the same jigsaw and if we all collectively work together to prevent these fires happening everywhere then they will hopefully die down one big thing is the press the past six months the last year working within the media and also being surrounded by constant transphobia has led me to really reevaluate what I do in my job because I just physically can't do it anymore. I do not have the energy. I do not have the care. And that's difficult. And when there's expectation on you to continue to do that all the time, it's like you're between a rock and a hard place. So what I would need people to do is to stop coming to me and coming to marginalised people when bad things happen to our community and ask us how we feel like, the amount of times when people were like, oh, did you see what J.K. Rowling said? I'm like, of course I fucking saw what she said, but I don't care. Like, why do you think I care about this woman? When anything transphobic happens, it ha- you know, I'll be honest, it happens from within the community. It, ha- it happens predominantly from white gay men. They'll be like, oh, my God, have you seen this? And I'm like, of course I've seen it. I'm just not engaging with it because it's about my community. Yeah. So I'd say, if you yeah. see Here's things, some more trauma. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you see things, go and focus on them and, you know, do what you can to change that narrative. Don't bring it to my front door and expect me to yeah. put the fire out, even though the fire's already in my own Yeah, house. I find it really condescending. It's like everyone is, also particularly within our community, I think there's this, it's like self-infantilization when you're like speaking to trans and gender non-conforming people, right? One, it's like the heroization of trans and gender non-conforming people that, Martha P. through the first brick, and then you have this sudden conversation that, and this belief among people that actually, that with the platform comes like they're, that they're responsible for it, that trans and gender non-conforming people are responsible for the changes that are going to happen within the community because they've always been at the forefront. And I'm like, no, actually, the world has changed. You have a platform. You have power that has surpassed that of trans and gender non-conforming people in the West specifically. And so your role now is the same what you would demand of the oppressor, right? It's because before it was like, people like to sort of go, and this is what I've been my frustration at first was, you know, because people go back to the archives and look at the history of the LGBTQ community. And there's this, yes, you have Martha P through, through the first book, the brick, Martha P. Johnson through the first brick, not the first book. <laughs> and then you have this kind of conversation that's like, yes, trans and gender non-conforming people led uh, the LGBTQ community out of that kind of violent, oppressive state that they were in, in the West. And so there's this kind of expectation now that actually, you know, they're still oppressed, they're doing all this great stuff, they're like these, like, infallible angels who are are going to save us from 
the demons that are hating our community. And actually, no, we have to take an active role in dismantling transphobia within the West, because in Britain, particularly, if you are gay, you are not experiencing the same things that trans and gender conforming people are, unless you're like gay and Muslim, or, and even then, if you're like a queer woman that's black, or, you know, there's obviously all of these intersectionalities, but if you are a cisgender gay man, that you, you have, in more ways than one, taken the role of the oppressor, because uh, people justify their transphobia through their affiliation with gay men. And I found that a lot in the press, I think the, the kind of relationship between what we have now versus what we have in the past, the dynamic has changed from being gay men being the kind of the AIDS carrying faggots, you know, that's who they are. Whereas now it's like trans people are the disease carrying danger to where we are, to our current society. It's like, this is a sickness. This is a a, a disease that is infecting our children, and so we need to protect our children. And that, I think, has not changed from by publications like The Telegraph. I think fundamentally it has been about a threat to their way of life, and it, whether that be black people, gay people in the 80s, or trans people now. There's this conversation that goes on in the press, the way that a lot of these publications justify their transphobia is through the use of individuals and and people from extremely transphobic backgrounds or homophobic backgrounds to justify their actual political position of not just the part of not just the paper but the party that they affiliate with too and so what i want to ask you is if the telegraph approached you for example would you respond? And do you think that it's worth responding? What is your thoughts around the way that the British press work in, in getting people to come in and then fighting with each other and then making a point out of that? Like, do you get what I mean? I do get what you mean. There is definitely a way in which the British press and more recently TV and news take figureheads from communities that are transphobic and profile them under the guise of freedom of speech. So that, you know, take Suzanne Moore, take Graham Linehan, you know, platforming these people legitimizes their views to an audience that, no offense, are naive. The majority of the, the people watching may not know a lot about trans issues. So if they're seeing someone like Graham Linehan talking about these topics, and that is their first introduction, they're going to affiliate that with the fact that it's the BBC. They're going to be like, okay, the BBC wouldn't put this on the telly if it was bad. So therefore, they just take it as, as fact. There's definitely an argument. I've experienced it. I've experienced it with The Telegraph personally. I've experienced it with, like, The Sun, who I, I actually would rather die than do anything with. Is It's so manipulative when you think about it. I remember in the um, at the beginning of my career... I was a yes person. I needed money. I'll be frank. I needed money. I needed jobs. I needed, I was building up a profile. I still am. But at that point, I was, I needed to say yes. So I made lots of mistakes in saying yes to things. I went on Sky News. I'm saying, I'm, you know, I'm going on to, to things where I thought it was the right decision. But looking back now, it's completely wrong. But I can't blame myself fully there. I can take responsibility. But I also, as I say, it's completely manipulative because they know these publications and the press know that trans and gender nonconforming people don't have opportunities as in abundance as other people. So therefore, if they can almost dangle the carrot of you're going to be on the telly or you're going to be on the front page of this or we want to profile you in this, it's, it, you know, you're going to take it. Why wouldn't you take it? If you, if, for example, with me, if I want to get anywhere in the media industry and I've got a media outlet saying we're going to do this for you of course I'm when I was you know I'm naive I'm going to take it and then they completely flip the script it's completely manipulative it's completely just looking back now it's just well disgusting. the system of publications of media of of the way that things in this country are reported and the way they're shown on tv it's inherently rotten right the sis the process is rotten the process is we're, going, we're, we're talking about this person who said something really 
transphobic, and now people are angry because they're hurt. And so how do we get, one, the most amount of TV viewers, and then who are the people that are going to make that happen? You know, and, and their entire decisions aren't based on reporting a story or from the perspective of, here's a, a situation that has transpired. We need someone to come in to explain what is the crux, the nuance of this issue, and stop there. It's this focus on how do we not get that side angry, and how do we not get our overlords angry uh, by not positioning, not, not bringing in someone that's too left-wing or too progressive to talk about these issues. And it's like, unfortunately, the, the victims of this transphobia or this homophobia happen to be progressive. They're going to be progressive. And so there's this desperation to balance that opinion with the opinion of someone who is inherently violent for the sake of this kind of British, particularly in Britain, this obsession with having two sides of, of the story. When in, in like our case, it's we're getting killed and we're our lives are being threatened and you're bringing someone who wants to actually commit that violence. The balance is the person, murder versus victim. Versus victim. And so it doesn't make logical sense, but because it's Britain, it's like, well, we're above anything that's too awful because we're, you know, we've moved past that, so to speak. There's this assumption that Britain, particularly the British, and by Britain I mean the British press, that they're innocent. The BBC, that the process of the BBC, the process of the Telegraph and the Times is there are laws in place. There are ethical frameworks that we follow because we're British. And unfortunately, people in the upper classes of this country have never conformed to that code of ethics. It's only people who have been below them, whether that be the working class or the middle class. It's been this, this kind of assumption that is the queen and the royal family are, are free from uh, fault, that they're divine. And the same applies to politicians and to the press because there's this assumption that they could never be corrupt or wrong when actually what we're seeing with trans issues here in the UK in particular is that the press will use upper-class voices, rich white voices, political voices to justify an extremely violent position because they know they can get away with it. So I'm of the opinion that trans people and gender non-conforming people should do as they please. And it is the role of us as non-trans or non-gender non-conforming people, or gender-conforming people rather, to combat the rise of this kind of violence through the press. And I think that's a big reason why we wanted to do Media Watch. I think just to add is, yeah, the, the insidious nature of the press is, is the fact that, you know, an example is I was rung by the Good Morning Britain team a couple of years ago. First of all, how do you have my number, babe? Second of all, it was an issue that had completely nothing to do with gender, yet they knew, and I, I said this to them down the phone, I was like, this has nothing to do with gender identity or transness, yet you know that your commander-in-chief is going to love this and it's going to get you views, it's going to get you drama, it's going to get you Daily Mail articles, it's going to get you hype. So you want, I literally was like, this is complete manipulation and violence because at the end of the day, what will happen is if I did that, or whoever did that, the marginalized person would get absolutely ripped to shreds. And for what? For more money in their pocket. It's, yeah, I just echo everything you said. It's, it's completely parasitic. I went through this kind of process of, one, I wasn't getting as many requests as I was at the start because I stopped responding. But there was, there, we've seen within the community a lot of conversations around Particularly a lot of people saying, why are you going in the press in the first place? Don't go when they've gone to manipulate you. And I agree to an extent to that. But then it's like, if we as the people who are reading, who are learning, who are experiencing, 
whether we be queer, Muslim, lesbian, and black, gender nonconforming, or trans, then my kind of thought process around it is, aren't they going to find someone that's not done the reading, who just wants to go on it, to be, because we know how manipulative producers and these planning groups can be. So I just wanted to know what process you went through and why you kind of, what do you think the kind of answer to that is? It's like, do we just not go on? A big example of that was I was asked to go on to Sky News to talk about um, puberty blockers. And I remember whenever I get asked to do something like that, I have a really great relationship with the media team at Stonewall. And I always just, I'm like, right, look, I've been asked to do this. What do you think? Like, because they know all the ins and outs. You know, I might not, might not agree with everything that happens at Stonewall, but I know that they know their shit. So I spoke to them about it. And, and my main reason for doing it, and it was, a, it was a battle, and it was probably one of the hardest things I've done, but one of, the reason for doing it was because I knew that although I've not experienced going on puberty blockers, I've not experienced a medical transition. If someone were to go in that position who had, not to throw in a saviour complex, but if someone was to go in on TV having to essentially plea for something that they themselves have experienced, that is more damaging to them than it is to me as someone who can just witness it in the community. And I did, and I went, and it was stressful, and it was difficult, and that's the that's the image that Graham Linehan used for his Twitter header for a long time, is me sat there looking sensational. And it, it still it still causes shit for me, but I, I knew that it would be easier to deal with than, um, especially because they wanted to get a young trans person on because it was about puberty blockers. And I was like, where is your moral code here? Like, where is your ethical code that you were like willing to get a young trans person on to be like absolutely slaughtered i've decided to step away from that because i can't i physically can't do it anymore it will kill me if i continue to do it it will just drive me into the ground it is violent right the press here is violent there the press in britain is violent they have a history of violence and a, a history of justifying violence a history of encouraging violence through the normalization of bigotry and hatred through like opinion pieces and this kind of idea that that free speech is justification to cause direct harm on entire communities because it makes them feel safer. We need to leave it there for a moment, but after this ad break, we'll be diving into the media watch vaults to look at how the Telegraph were commenting on the gay community back in 1985 in much the same way the mainstream press are attacking the trans community today. Hey, Media Watch, the... No, 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 what the hell is this? I mean, this sounds different. Where uh, are this, we? This isn't our Snatch... Bring back the Snatch music, please. Okay, that's better. Hey, Media Watch listeners, it's Sam and Umar here from Snatched, our Gay Times original podcast about all things drag race. Each week, we've been giving our verdict on the runway looks, kikiing about all the drama, conflama, and we have exclusive interviews with some of the most iconic queens in drag race history. All episodes of Snatch Season 1 are available to listen to now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome back. This is the part of the show when we look back at excerpts from the Media Watch archive. For those of you who don't know, Media Watch was a monthly column in Gay Times magazine between 1983 to 2008, written by Terry Sanderson, critiquing the way the mainstream media reported on gay issues. For this episode, we've unearthed the Media Watch column from March 1985 that details the way the mainstream press has declared war on homosexuals. So, Jamie, in this article from March 1985. There's a quote that they've put in from a peregrine Westbourne from the Sunday Telegraph who wrote, the public's first reaction to this new danger 
will be to look for a scapegoat, a search which in this case presents no difficulty at all, the male homosexual being the obvious candidate. Not that scapegoat is quite the right word, it carries with it the suggestion, wholly inappropriate in the case of AIDS, of some innocent person or group being forced to bear the undeserved burden. In the case of AIDS, male homosexuals undoubtedly are responsible. The conversation, the quotes that they have in this article, you know, like AIDS is a real threat to the moral fabric of society. A lot of ordinary people are going to catch something from bay glasses. We don't want gays on the premises. Let's face it, they're the ones who cause it. And this is from an article in March 1985. And Jamie, I wanted to ask you, there are so many similarities between the way that gay people in the 80s were ostracized for their biological dirtiness and their how they were prone to disease. And there was this aggressive focus on the biology of the gay man, not as, as what he is, but as to what he carries. And I wonder if you, if you could talk a little more about this kind of obsession with biology, particularly among the press here in the UK that has been transparent and obvious for the last 30, 40 years. The idea that the press can essentially publish lies about, specifically in this case, about biology, that just are not true, that are completely fabricated, but be able to get away with it because they themselves have created the hostile environment that allows it to flourish. So therefore, they're not, they're not saying anything extraordinary because they have fostered that environment to allow themselves to say it. So especially with biology, like the fact that biology is seen as this completely binary space within the press but then if you go to actual science like literal fact where biology is not binary intersex people exist you know there are lots of ways in which that is not just an idea but that is a a piece of fact that for some, some reason the press don't seem to care you know they don't seem to think oh okay this is credible information that we must share they're still going to riff off of what they believe most of their audience still think as fact. And they are going to discredit the fact that biology is seen as something that is completely insidious or completely dirty or, to be honest, fucked up. That's basically what they're saying. They're saying that trans people's biology is fucked up. And like I say, because they've created that environment, they're able to say it with no ramifications because the people that will hold them accountable are too small, in their opinion, to make any valid noise against what they're saying. It's the assumption among a lot of listeners or readers or watchers of the news of and consumers of the media. But again, it is that assumption in the kind of, in the truth of the press here, particularly in the UK, where the press is not, is assumed to be just an, a, a relayer of information that is happening within the country. But instead, it, what it actually is, is a propagator and an insinuator of the violence, of the transphobia, of the homophobia. That They are finding people who have this extremely violent opinion and centering that. And... You know, you know this better than anyone, right? Anyone that is gender non-conforming or trans knows this because in the UK in particular, there is a serious focus and has been, as we have seen from the 80s, this aggressive focus on this is a danger to the way, our way of life. This is a danger to our biology. This is a danger to our health. This is the danger to our children's health. You're going to get the gay AIDS gene by drinking a glass of beer, your children are going to be forced to become women when they're men or men when they're women. And that's what these LGBTQ people are doing. So it's like, we know this. We see it every day. We experience it. This is not a new topic for us. It's not something that, you know, we haven't talked about or addressed. We talk about this shit every day. And it's just not getting through. And, and so many of us are just exhausted 
how do you navigate that? Like personally, is how do you navigate a country that despises you or us? How you sort of react to it now versus how you used to at the start? I think at this at the beginning of my career and in, in what you know four years ago, there was still this palpable tension within the press, but there was, and part of me feels bad about it. But there was there was almost a part of me that felt optimistic that we could change it, and that sounds quite sad to say out loud now. But like there was a part of the the energy, I guess, at that time that was like, "Come on, guys, we've got this. It's only Rupert Murdoch." And now I think to personally navigate something like that, I had I had to remove myself, not remove myself from the media because I love the media. It's my job. I love storytelling. I love all of those things that come with my job, but. I could not exist within that frame that the press was putting me in because it was, you know, it, it led me down many a path that I'm now having to personally rectify now in, in myself. You know, earlier when I said that if I didn't stop or if I didn't leave, it would kill me. Like now I know that that is a very real fact, not necessarily from external people, but from what happens within myself when I have to sit with all of that information is that I, I don't become a nice person. I become an addict, I become all of these things that are, I'm not going to put the sole blame on the media and the press, but that is a huge part of it in my in my journey to, it, it, I guess, in recovery is is acknowledging what has caused this, you know, what, what has led to this. And there's a huge part of, of that that is I have a fear of being seen as something that I'm not and a huge fear of being classed unworthy. And then when you put the pieces together, you think, oh, okay, where does this fear come from? Oh, right. It comes from the fact that the majority of this country reads that information daily in the news. So, and I think that happens to a lot of, so many people, you know, I'm obviously in a privileged position with my job, with my role, but equally that means that I personally can face quite a lot of the brunt of it because people, like you say, will shove it in your face. And it has led me to, you know, just be on my knees and just have to find a way out of that. It's a tool right? It's a tool of white supremacy. It's a tool of systemic oppression of lower classes and marginalized communities. The papers and the media and the publications and the broadcasters that we have in this country have a history of being directly tied to the political class, to the government in power, historically. Particularly, whether they're, particularly in this country, it's vehemently right-wing. We know this. But I think, you know, there's a reason that queer people, you know, are 27 times more likely to be activists. And that's because activism is a reaction to a a mainstream idea that is oppressive. I think It's 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 a response to aggression. It's a response to violence. And I think I've begun to see the press myself as a, as a, as a tool of a political class that is not interested in our liberation, that is not interested in our safety, in our progress, because they're still the old guard, you know? They're still... They're all, as, I descri- as I've described many a time, either fucking people in politics... They're either married to them or they're friends with them. They went to school together. It's, there's a separation between political ideology and the press. When actually here in Britain in particular, they're so closely tied, you cannot separate them. And so as we try to navigate this kind of country where we're going back and forth between the press, where it's like trying to balance right and left or or queer and not, when in actuality, the people that we're trying to converse with when we go on papers, in the papers, when we go on TV, are people who are mostly do not agree with our very existence or the ideas behind our existence. And so it's not wrong for us or, you know, for people like you to go to kind of, kind of just go, actually, this is too much because Every time we in- interact with the press or engage with the press, we are putting ourselves in the line of violence because that is their role. <laughs> that, is their, that has become their objective because it is only in our 
in the in the violence that we face that they find attention, profit, and like satisfaction among their political class. It's like, oh, you did this, or you created this hoopla, and that's good, and that's the machine that it runs on. But I don't think you should undermine the impact that you have had. And even the small press things that you've done or the big TV appearances and whatnot, there is still, I think, a vital role, and which is precisely the point of, I guess, this conversation was that there is a role that we play in, in our very, in combating these opinions of us through mediums like this that we can find solace and, and continue to keep our voices in that landscape, right, in that space. The reason why I didn't take my story of a really personal topic, a really dark time of sexual violence, of rape, of, of that to a, a mainstream publication, although, I, you know, although the advocate part of me wanted to do it because I knew that it would gain potentially more coverage, is that, A, I had to think, could these people throw me in at the deep end? Could they put me, you know, could they plaster me anywhere? Could they try and really make a a spectacle of me that could propel me into a situation that I do not want to be in? And B, I can't trust that they're going to own my narrative in a way that I want. And the only place that I knew I could do that was with queer media because their intentions are right. They are not run for political gain. They are not run to appease the system. They are run to actively oppose it. And so I knew that that was the right place for me. And that's why I'm so grateful to, you know, be contributing editor with Gay Times is because I can continue to do what so much of the mainstream media don't do is to tell stories and storytell and narrate people's lives with the intention of allowing them to speak their truth, not political or profit gain. I think that's a perfect note to end this episode on. Jamie, thank you so much for joining me today. Cool. Yeah, thank you very much, Shamir. It's been a pleasure. It's a really important conversation that is going on, so I'm glad we are able to have it today. Lots of love. You've been listening to Media Watch with Shamir Sunny, a Gay Times original podcast series. Subscribe and listen to more episodes of Media Watch on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure you're following at Gay Times on all major social media platforms for the latest LGBTQ plus news, culture, and entertainment. If you enjoyed this episode of Media Watch, be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And finally, Make sure you check out Gay Times Plus, our membership platform for everyone in our community. You can find more information at gaytimesplus.com.